You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Mikael Jonsson at AUX. There's plenty of companies out there at 10 or even $20 billion of AR that we would never back because we don't think they built a scalable go-to-market. All right, Daniel, here we are again for another episode of the SAS Nordic podcast. Yes. So how are you today? Very good, very good. And uh, I'm always excited to be back on the investor track. So here we are uh, once again with our second investor track, specifically talking about scale-ups. So that's going to be an exciting topic ahead of us. Yeah, and I guess you will ask more of the advanced questions and I will try to take the newbie questions. So there's something for everyone. Hey, I'll, I'll take that. I, I always thought I was the pretty one in this relationship. But if you want to, if you want me to be the pretty one and the smart one, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you listened from the beginning of the podcast, our very first guest, Fredrik Skanse at Funnel, he recommended us to talk to Mikael Jönsson at Ox. And uh, they are focusing on investing in B2B SaaS companies that are in the scale-up phase. So this one is for you, Fredrik. Let's go and talk to Mikael. Today, we are very happy to have Mikael Jonsson, co-founder and general partner at Ox, here as a guest at um, SaaS Nordic. So welcome, Mikael. Thanks, Thomas. Uh, nice to be with you guys, and thanks for having me. Hey, we're really excited to have you here. We've actually had one of your portfolio companies in, uh, I think it was one of our first episodes, uh, Frederick from Funnel on the show, and he he spoke highly of you and the collaboration you guys had, so we're happy to have you here. Yeah, and I'll, I'll go, you'll, you'll hear that that goes both ways. I'll speak very highly of Frederick, and if you had them as one of your first companies, that, w- that was a pretty good start to the podcast, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we think, we think so too, yeah. And uh, we're going to talk about, I mean, you're mainly investing in SaaS B2B scale-ups, correct? Yes, we, we are a very niche specialist firm in the sense that we invest in one thing and absolutely one thing only, and that is B2B SaaS at the scale-up stage. So I'd be happy to, a little bit further, you know, into the podcast, what, what we mean by that. Absolutely. But first, Ox. Uh, why Ox? What does it mean? <laughs> it honestly means nothing. Uh, it is a very short name that the this sort of idea of not being XYZ capital partners or ventures or whatever have you was that we wanted to create a brand where we could hopefully build a positioning based on some differentiation that it you know it's not something that sounds like everybody else in the market. So you know, that, 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 that was really why it was there. It's short. There was a domain available. Okay, there we have it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is, you know, in, in the lore of Ox, you know, we've sort of come to the point where we, I think we're creating the narrative around, yes, you know, we like the Ox. It's, it's you know, one of these, you know, very sturdy animals and creatures that will pull, you know, pull the plow for you and, you know, you know pull you forward and all that stuff. And it's a very sturdy animal. It, it's very very sustainable, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, honestly, the, the real the real truth is it doesn't mean anything and it was short and sweet and it was available. Yeah. And it's OXX if you want to find it. OXX.VC. That's where you can be found, right, as a company. That's correct. I think that's that's fair enough. But the, the other day I had a theory. I thought like maybe they're like referring to XOXO. So kisses and hugs when you collaborate with us. <laughs> I was hoping you would go in that direction, but 
Fair enough. It was the name that was available. Short and sweet. <laughs> I have to disappoint you guys. I'm sorry. Michael, uh, a lot of us, or at least uh, people in the SaaS space, we've heard of you before and, and we've seen you, but can you take us a little bit behind the scenes? Tell us about Ox. Walk us through some of the, the numbers and metrics. So how big are you guys? What's the size of the portfolio? What's, what's an investment horizon look like for you guys? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, we're we're there. We're ten people in our investment team, uh, diverse backgrounds. From you know myself and Richard, a co-founder of the firm, we've been investing in venture for twenty years. We recruited a very talented team of people who have backgrounds in venture investing, in uh, investment banking, in uh, product marketing, in B two B SaaS sales, uh, and whatever have you. Right. So we've tried to build a diverse team that can bring different perspectives to situations where really the goal for us is that every conversation you have with someone who represents Ox should be a relevant and valuable conversation. There will be no box checking exercises as I'm sure some entrepreneurs out there will be frustrated about with some firms. So so that, that's, that's something we've done very intentionally. Uh, so there's 10 people was investing. Uh, we're investing from our first fund, which is $130 million. We've uh, backed six companies in that fund so far. Uh, we have another couple of companies that we're managing from an older fund. Uh, and then we will be raising our next fund this year. Uh, again, it's investments at the scale-up stage. So that can mean anything from a late Series A investment to a Series B investment or anything in there between, to be honest. We, we don't really subscribe to the traditional Series A, Series B, Series C paradigm anymore. It's like it seems to be much more of a continuum there, where companies will raise money uh, depending on you know when they need it and what they need it for. But the 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 common denominator is companies with product market fit want to invest in scaling up their go to market function, typically international expansion, broadening the product footprint. Uh, where we can write an initial check of five to ten million dollars, uh, and where that serves as a stepping stone, I guess, into a larger international round, typically in you know eighteen to twenty-four months. Okay. And uh, speaking about markets and geographies, predominantly, where do you look for investments? Is that the Nordics? Is it Europe? So we're again, you know, we're a very niche firm in terms of what we look for, and we're also niche in terms of geographies. We we with our first fund, we've focused our efforts on the Nordics, UK, and honestly Israel as well. Uh, and I think you know we we will very much continue to focus on these markets as our core markets. But as we raise our second fund now, we will broaden the footprint to basically be pan-European. Uh, so that's you know finding companies with their existence or origin in Europe who are scaling out internationally. Typically, that means a pretty strong focus on how to be able to go to market in the U.S. So we we have companies in the portfolio today who actually are domiciled in the U.S. as well. That that's you know for some of them that's a natural step. Okay, and are there any particular verticals? You know, when you said Israel, my mind went directly to data AI type of companies. But if you could handpick, are there any verticals where you feel that this is where we want to move? Not not necessarily verticals, but we have five different themes, if you like, which we follow in our proactive sourcing. So. A general statement: We will invest broadly across applications and infrastructure, right? But when we when we source and when we actively look for things, and where I would say we probably have 
a better knowledge and understanding than in other places is, you know, the first of those is just like you said, it's data. We, we, we call it data convergence and refinery because we think it's all about what you actually do with the data and how you refine the value of the data. And there's a whole host of different place you can invest into based on that. So, you know, funnel is a really, really good case in point, obviously. So that's a theme where we're big on. I would say that probably 30-ish percent or more of our deal flow is within that category right now, uh, which is obviously a very big one. Okay. Uh, the, uh, another one, which, you know, it's not going to be a surprise to, to you or anybody else listening in is the future of work. So, you know, where does work get done? How does it get done? By whom, when, et cetera? And how do we all collaborate around doing that? And also around how do you attract, recruit, develop and retain the best talent, right? There's there's all sorts of SaaS tools available for that right now. So that's another big theme. Um, the third one uh, that perhaps is not as prevalent yet, but is really coming of age is the whole area of sustainability where you have a lot of companies building software to help companies in their transition to become more sustainable or to report on their sustainability initiatives, et cetera. Michael, tell us about Ox. What are you guys all about? Yeah, so Ox was founded uh, four years ago, roughly, uh, with the intent of creating a specialist niche firm for Europe's B2B SaaS companies, uh, the leading European B2B SaaS companies at the scale-up stage. Uh, so this was a strategy that we had uh, developed inside of Amadeus Capital Partners, uh, my co-founder Richard and I. And when we decided to raise a dedicated fund for that, we decided to spin ourselves out and found Ox. And the reason for that was primarily we wanted to create a firm and a brand that was very closely associated with that and nothing but that. Our hypothesis is that venture today is all about specialization, all about trying to, you know, knowing what you're doing and knowing how you can provide value to the companies you invest. And we're trying to do that by staying very niche in terms of the types of companies we invest in at the, and at the stage we invest in. And also, to be very honest, in the geographies that we invest in. I, li- I like that because it, it sounds like you're uh, uh, following your own mantra, so to say. It's all about being focused. Yes. And I think that is, you know, we, we do eat our own dog food in that sense, because that is something you'll hear me, uh, you know, preach a lot when it comes to the companies that we work with and the sort of, uh, you know, the the challenges that they face in their daily work to to build global companies, it, it is a lot about actually deciding what to do and deciding what not to do and staying very, very focused and determined and hell-bent on doing that thing really, really well. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we do, you know, we do see the point of eating our dog food in that sense. And how did you end up in this? I mean, my background is over 20 years now as a venture investor, uh, primarily in B2B and software, which then became SaaS. I started my career uh, with Investor AB in Stockholm. So that the part of Investor AB that did venture called Investor Growth Capital. Uh, I spent 11 years there. Uh, then I spent four years with Amadeus Capital Partners before we founded Ox. So you started to invest from the beginning. You just went out of school and said, hey, I'm going to put money into uh, to an interesting company and, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to be rich. Or uh, what was the... No, I uh, I did have a couple of years. Uh, I did a couple of years of consulting uh, before I came into the investment world. And it was very much a learning experience. I, I actually started my role with Investor Growth Capital uh, in August of 2000. So I signed the contract the day Nasdaq peaked in March of 2000. 
And then it was all downhill for about a year and a half. <laughs> so my experience, my experience was very much about, you know, understanding, you know, they've invested a very large portfolio uh, and understanding what companies should we continue to support, which ones are, you know, questionable and which ones should we just try to essentially, you know, exit as soon as possible. So there was a lot of that. And I think, I guess it was a good learning experience that investing is really not about just finding a company. It's actually about developing a company and exiting a company. Um, that, that's how you make money as an investor. Uh, and that's really the hard part, to be honest. You have mentioned that you invest in companies, uh, in scale-ups, B2B companies. So in your world, what's a scale-up? So for us, a, a scale-up company is a company that has proven product market fit in the sense that they built the product, they deliver that product to the market, they have a customer base that's referenceable and that's buying more of that product, and they can attest to why this product is better than other products in the market. That is really the first sort of ultimate test of that. And then there's like a, a number of different metrics, if or lens, if you like, it consists of a number of different metrics uh, and particular focus areas that we look at where companies will be you know, more or less mature, but it all boils down to having proven product market fit. And then we can start discussing how far along towards the spectrum of what we call go-to-market fit, have you actually proven yourself? But that stage from product market fit to go-to-market fit is what we refer to as the scale-up stage. Okay, and how would you concretely define and measure this? Like when does somebody have product market fit versus when does somebody have or is ready for go-to-market fit? Like when you go in and speak to somebody, what is it that you look at? Yeah, so so product market fit is probably one of the most nebulous terms out there, right? And it means different things to everyone. From us, from our perspective, there is one fundamental criteria for product market fit, and that all comes down to revenue retention. Have you been able to prove that you can sell a product to someone that they continue to use and ideally increase the usage of that product. That is for us the, the ultimate test of product market fit. It doesn't mean that you've been able to you know, do that in a scalable way or that you could do that all over the world or that you, you've done that at the, you know, the ideal price, et cetera, but you've proven that there's a need for your product out there and there are people who want it. Uh, and then you, you can discuss you know, what, what, what sort of revenue retention numbers should you be you know, able to show if you can claim to product market fit. We tend to think it's, you know, 90% gross revenue retention, typically, at least if you're in the enterprise, and probably 110, 120% uh, net revenue retention. But that will vary depending on the company, depending on the size, you know, the ticket size you're selling into, the segment of the market you're selling into. But revenue retention, gross and net, that is the key to prove product market fit in SaaS. Right. And I was just about to ask, is there a certain size in terms of revenue where you say like, okay, this is a good size for us? Is there certain companies that if you're below this number, we don't look at you? Yeah. So we're very careful in not you know, defining a particular revenue or ARR threshold, right? We don't subscribe to that. However, given the fact that we're very, very determined in backing companies that have proven product market fit and are you know, honestly on their track of proving go to market fit so they will have emerging proof on the commercial metrics that we're looking for as well that will mean that we we will need to back companies that have reached a certain size and a certain stage now to us i'll be really honest it doesn't matter if that company has 10 million dollars of arr or if it has 2 million dollars of arr the key thing for us is how can we quantitatively understand 
the metrics that they can derive and how they're going about going to market. There's plenty of companies out there at 10 or even $20 billion of ARR that we would never back because we don't think they built a scalable go-to-market. They basically hacked their way there. <laughs> I was just about to say, can you give us some examples? So, I, no, I, I, <laughs> I, I think I'll refrain from naming names. <laughs> can you give us uh, some examples of Seemingly, not the names of the companies, but it looks like on a piece of paper, here we have somebody that has gone from zero to 10 million. But when you dig into it, you see the warning signs. What are those typical warning signs? Yeah, I think the easiest way of doing it is how do you get to go to market fit? What's the ideal company, right? What are we trying to achieve, right? And, And well, you know, because for us, product market fit is the first step on the journey. Right. Then there's a massive... Uh, step, which is about defining the go-to-market fit. The problem we see a lot is that people try to scale really rapidly, investing massive amounts in marketing and sales without having found their go-to-market fit. And usually that's a recipe for disaster. So, you know, what is it that we're looking for? As I've said, you know, strong net revenue retention. That's clearly where it starts. The the second thing we're looking for is a really sharp go-to-market focus. So companies that, you know, this comes back to what we said, focus. Do one thing and do that thing really, really well, better than anyone else. And stay focused until you've proven that out at some level of scale. There's way too many companies that try to do too many things at once and are way too scattered in their approach in terms of how they're addressing the market, whether that is in terms of, you know, the product they're selling, what that you know, the buyer persona for that product is, what verticals they're attacking, what deal sizes they're selling at, what price ranges, uh, what channel mix, etc. Right. So stay focused. Do one thing really well, and then you can scale from there. So that's that's the first thing we're looking for. Second thing is you know very clearly identified buyer personas. If you're going to create a scalable market strategy, go to market strategy you really need to understand who you're selling into. It's it's also really surprising how few companies really have thought that through, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, we'll sell, we'll sell to the CIO and we'll sell to the, you know, the VP dev and we'll sell to sometimes the CMO, right? And that's like, ooh, that's a, that's a very rare mix. Why is that, right? Well, it just happened to be that way. So, you know, we're looking for companies that have a very strong sense of purpose, who understand who they're for and why they exist. And therefore, they've selected a few very clear uh, target buyer personas. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy you say that. Like all these exercises that you're talking about is something Thomas and I have <laughs> uh, sometimes painfully gone through in, in, in our careers. But it's, it's it's something that needs to be in place to make sure that you're moving in the right direction. Um, I, I was a little bit curious. So when you start interacting with uh, with the portfolio companies, do they already have these things in play? And in place, or is that something you help them with? Yeah. So, I mean, th- there's no company that we would back that have figured all these things out. If they have, they will be worth so much money. They will be so large in terms of ARR. They will want checks that are much bigger than anything we could write, to be honest with you. So, you know, where it's a continuum, right? From product market fit to go to market fit, how far along that continuum are you? We're looking for companies that have the right intrinsics where we can help them to double down and focus their efforts to nail all of these things. So it's, it's, you know, it's hard to say, are they, you know, 10% there or are they 50% there? It's going to vary. There's no company that we back that's 100% there. 
and our job is really trying to help them get there, obviously. Okay. So in what concrete way do you work with these customers to to sort of get them through these exercises? Are, are you sort of working uh, on the board with the management team? Do you get even more involved hands-on with the, the organization or what does that look like? I think our, our approach is one of, you know, every every investor worth the name will say that they're an active investor, that they're helpful and that they'll do, you know, they'll, they'll engage with the company. We do not have a, you know, some investors will come with their playbook and say, this is how you do X, Y, and Z. We don't do that because the companies we back, you know, we, we, first of all, they tend to be run by people who've been around, right? They're not first time entrepreneurs or they're like experienced in their domain. And it's really hard to tell these people what to do. Uh, so, you know, you, you have to adapt to the specific circumstances of the company you're working with. So, That doesn't mean that the challenges aren't of a similar nature, but there's not like one recipe for how to do things. Uh, You know, just take a couple of my companies. Funnel, for instance, fundamentally different go-to-market than go-to-market challenges compared to an Apica, which sells $500,000 tickets to the financial services industry, right? It's, It's fundamentally different. That doesn't mean that they don't have, you know, a challenge in terms of how they scale their go to market, right? It's just a different recipe for how to do that. So what we try to do is is understand the unique company and we try to engage ourselves and our network of experts and advisors and uh, you know help them out in the best way possibly that we can there. One of the big things that all of our companies tend to go through is a positioning exercise, trying to better define who are we, who are we for and why do we exist and you know how should we take our product to market in terms of the positioning statement. That, that is something that is pretty generic, I would say. SAS Nordic is growing, and now we're launching a unique peer-to-peer community on Slack. My name is Nina, I'm the SAS Nordic Community Manager, and I would like to invite you to join this exciting forum. This will be the place to network, collaborate, and share knowledge with other SAS professionals in the Nordics. The SAS Nordic community is free and open to everyone working in Nordic SAS companies. Come join us at sasnordic.com. We can't wait to have you on board. So, Mikael, you mentioned before that you currently have uh, six companies that you have invested in. So, uh, who are they? Yeah, so it's it's a broad range of companies doing applications and infrastructure. But you you will uh, you know they they do tend to follow the themes that we're excited about. So, we have uh, the Swedish companies in the portfolio is Apica and Funnel. Apica is a company that does service level assurance. So, you know, ensuring the quality and availability of systems for for very large corporations worldwide. Uh, Funnel is a data refinery company, basically creating more value out of the data you have uh, isolated in silos uh, by helping companies make better decisions. Uh, We have a company called Peak AI that does an AI platform for retailers and brands, helping them get the power of AI without necessarily having an army of data scientists around. Uh, another company, an Israeli one called Lightico, which automates the entire process of selling subscription-based products online. Uh, we have uh, also in the portfolio company called Goodlord, which automates the entire lettings process for people who rent their uh, housing in the UK. 
Uh, and then we have a company called Codility, uh, which is an automated platform for uh, assessing developer skills and essentially helping you recruit from a larger, more diverse pool of people and finding a better fit with what you're looking for. It's a nice diversity. And I'm impressed that you knew them all so well. <laughs> well, there's only six of them so far. I mean, we're, we are a very niche investor in the sense that we will, we will invest in a very small, highly concentrated portfolio where every single company that we back will matter to us, right? So it's not a portfolio of 30 real options where, where there's going to be a few that survive and we'll continue to back them. Every company that we back is important to us. And you mentioned that you're soon starting up a new fund, I guess, that will enable you to invest in more companies. But who, who's putting in the cash? Yes, I think we ha we have the uh, regular mix of of limited partners, as they're called. You know, the the people who back the the venture capital firms and the funds we raise. They're called limited partners, whereas we are the general partners. So we have a mix of large institutions, family offices, and high net worth individuals. And on the institutional side, there are some public institutions and there are some private institutions. So those would be, you know, uh, pension funds. They would be uh, fund of funds who raise money from large endowments, etc. Uh, and then on the family office side, we have a number of uh, Swedish family offices, uh, some UK and German family offices, essentially from entrepreneurial families who've been successful at, and are now investing their money. And then there's a number of high net worth individuals uh, who are essentially people who we've worked with in the past or who know us or of us and want to be part of this journey. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I was just going through my checklist to see which ones I could check, which ones that uh, matched me. And I don't know about you, Thomas, but uh, I, I didn't hit it yet, no. just yet. Oh, I have to look at where my pension funds are going, <laughs> if, if they are going in this direction, maybe I should shift <laughs> gears. <laughs> I think I have in the 70s generation fund or something, I haven't done anything with it. So. They're, they're not part of this, let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> so about positioning, what is the difficulty with that? Is, is it to understand the market or is it to understand yourself? Uh, I mean, you, I guess you can be quite blind uh, when you're, I mean, in the middle of it. So what would you say about that? That's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, the, the first observation is that it is really difficult, right? That, you know, most companies we meet struggle with positioning. Uh, and why that is, I think it, it's got a number of, it's got a number of reasons and explanations. I think, you know, for, first and foremost, you know, like you said, when you're in the thick of it, it's hard to see the forest for the trees, right? So you're, uh, you are working day and night at breakneck speed to build something out of nothing. You're, you're doing the impossible, right? It's really hard to step back and sort of say, okay, I'm going to go that way, not that way. And we're doing this because of that. And we're not doing this because of that, right? That's something it's, it's really difficult to do that if you have not started the company based on an incredibly clear vision and ambition in terms of where you're going. So I think, you know, there are those companies that we see that are absolutely crystal clear as about this is our mission in life. This is why we started this company. This is where we're going. They rarely struggle with positioning to the same extent as most other companies that have, you know, they built the product for a customer, then they found some traction, then they found another customer which maybe had a slightly different use case, but there were lots of similarities. And then that proliferates over time. 
And before you know it, you have customers in 15 different verticals, uh, you know, selling at very different sizes and maybe, you know, needing different types of servicing for the product to get to market, et cetera. So I think it's, it's the, it's the natural way things evolve. Life is messy, right? Yeah. And if, if you, if you find yourself in the thick of things, you just focused on building a company, you don't necessarily, you know, take the time to step back and say, this is what we're going to do. And this is what we're not going to do. But there are those companies that have been, you know, crystal clear about their mission from day one. Mm. And those are obviously the ones that everyone is trying to find. Yeah. And, and maybe you think that you have created a new category or that you're very special. And then Gartner and Forrester, they come up with a report and they, they, they do a model and they invent a new abbreviation and so on. So how should you sort of relate to that? Should you go on what? It is a great question. Every company we work with have the same struggles. So, I mean, first and foremost, Different investors will will have different like preferences in terms of the back. For us, we invest as we've talked about at the scale up stage, but we only look for companies that have a product, the vision, ambition to lead a category at global scale. So it's it's very ambitious, right? So it's not like a regional leading company or a company that's happy to just do you know do 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 a particular vertical here in Europe, etc. It's you know it's bold and it's ambitious. So. Tying into what the analyst firms are saying and doing is, is ultimately really important for most of these companies. So there's, it's great to get the traction with the analysts. It's great to get their attention. The challenge is if you're trying to do something different, they always want to put you in a particular category and bucket, right? You belong here. No, 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 that's not us. That's not us. We do this. Okay, I'll put you here. No, 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 that's not us either, right? So it is awfully difficult getting an analyst to create a new category until you've reached a scale that is quite substantial. So if you're a hundred person company doing $10 million of revenue, no analyst is going to create a particular category around that, right? It's, it's about tying into what the analysts are hearing from the market. What's, what's their customer's interest? What are they looking for? And then finding a way for you to fit that into their interest and, and creating a category around it. So I think looking in our portfolio, for instance, now, you know, Funnel, they've been towing around this issue for a couple of years with a big analyst. And only now are they starting to really have a productive conversation about a category that is a new category, but where they fit really well and where they would be a leading company, frankly. So that's that's obviously helpful. Yeah, you see that those companies that doesn't fit any category, they are just in between all, all these different quarters and reports. And and that, then also the, it can be the situation that you spend a lot of time and money with the analysts telling them all your secrets. And then the analyst quits their job and starts working for a competitor. Yeah, that, that, that that's a big bummer, isn't it? I've actually had the situation where the analysts apply for a job with a company. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> that's how, that's how a couple of times i guess that's a good sign it could be interpreted both ways they could be a really poor analyst <laughs> so they they need to find a different job or you could have something which they're really interested in obviously yeah hey i wanted to, to to come back a little bit to the positioning exercise hypothetically if you imagine thomas and i are running this great software company something based on on data ai driven and and we've come to the point where we realize that you know we've customers all over the place we don't really know what our positioning is and then we sit, you sit across the table, like concretely, how do we get to what our positioning should be? Like, can you walk us through this exercise? How do we get there? 
Yeah, it is. There's actually people who write books about this, and there, there's there's podcasts being done about this particular topic, and you you can see YouTube videos on it. But you know, I think there's a couple of generic things. You know, it all starts with understanding the landscape you're in. So if you're doing, you know, you said you were doing something in data. <laughs> it's a, it's a pretty big value chain of different products, right? And you have people who do messaging. You do you have people who do the data pipelines for AI. You will have people who develop specific uh, algorithms for machine learning for particular use cases. There's just a myriad of different things. It is awfully difficult to be the best at all of these things unless you're like Google or Microsoft, right? They have the capacity to do that, but doing something that is different and has a unique twist to it. It may not be for everyone, right? It might be that it's a niche use case now because it's only you know doing real-time stuff maybe, or it's do only doing something which is you know n- you know necessary if you're running a hybrid cloud environment because that's what regulated industries need. So finding that edge in what you do is absolutely critical. Why is that important for whom, right? So that's where it starts. So not just being a copycat doing the same thing that everyone else is doing and that Amazon or Google can replicate tomorrow. That's that that's the first step. Now that that means you will probably have a reasonably defined and narrow proposition today, but then having the vision to where that takes you to build a really large company. And this is where it gets really tricky, right? Uh, you know, a lot of people through deduction can get to the place, well, actually, we're, we're pretty good for this type of customer, for this type of use case, in this type of scenario. That's that's usually, you know, most companies will not articulate that at first go, but it's not too difficult to sort of like weed that out through through a continuous discussion. The challenge is then combining that with what's the long-term vision? How do you build on that? Yeah. Uh, so that's really important. All right. So I think during our conversation here, you have been quite clear on what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And I thought we could try to summarize this in sort of uh, Michael's 10 commandments or something like that. Very short. <laughs> so I'm going to count them. Maybe we end up with six or seven. So... <laughs> So the first one, I guess, you, sh- you shouldn't have any investor but Ox. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you should absolutely have other investors. Honestly, we're, we're a part of an ecosystem, right? And if you, th- if you look at what we do, there's people who are much better than us investing in very early stage companies that are defining their product, that are just building a product for the market, right? We, we're, not, we're not the best at that. There's people who are better than us in you know, taking a company that has reached scalability and just, you know, massively building that to scale and towards IPO, we can, we can, you know, we'll happily join that journey, but we're not the best fund for that. And we don't have the financial resources to back you in doing that. In our little niche, if you're a company with product market fit, wanting to get to go to market fit without spending hundreds of millions of dollars on it, we're a pretty good fit, that I would say. So, we, we will collaborate with lots of different investors. So if there's one cardinal sin, if we can start with the cardinal sin, that that is, you know, stepping on the gas before you actually have nailed your go-to-market. There's way too many companies who get to product market fit and then they just throw boatloads of money at the challenge and they very rarely get there. There are cases where you can get there by brute force scaling, but... Usually that means you're a very high profile Silicon Valley company and you have unlimited access to, to financial resources. But if you, if you just, yeah, so that, that, that's the cardinal sin. 
the, the, the commandments then in order to avoid the cardinal sin is focus, focus, focus. Know your customer and your buyer persona. Invest in demand generation. So don't just sell to people you know and have been working with for 20 years. Investing something that's scalable, which allows you to reach people who do not know you. Uh, specialize your sales as early as possible, whether that is in terms of inbound or outbound or inside or outside or direct or channel or account managers versus customer success, etc. Specialize as early as possible because that will allow you to hire people who are a good fit for that role. That's the biggest challenge in finding really good salespeople is you haven't specialized enough. So you're trying to find a jack of all trades. The problem is then they're also masters of none. Um, what else? Um, over-invest on positioning. Over-invest in trying to be super clear about who you are, why you exist, and what you do for whom. Over-invest on that. That will bring so many things uh, downstream in terms of clarity in the market, your marketing message, and your ability to just cut through the noise. Um, culture. Uh, you know, there's this the, the, the saying, which, you know, it's, it's getting a bit old, but culture eats strategy for breakfast. But really doubling down on culture is so important because if you reach the point where you really have scalability, things are going to be moving at breakneck speed. And you're not going to be able to, you know, control things. You're not going to be able to install processes for everything. Cultural then becomes the common denominator by which everyone is able to navigate and actually understand how we you know what direction to head. So any good company that reaches scale will have a strong culture typically. You're almost there. How, how many how many commandments were that? Well, uh, it's six, but I think we can count the uh, focus as three. So two more. Um, stay true to your vision. There will be temptations all along the journey, not just to you know defocus and do something you shouldn't be doing, but there will be companies wanting to acquire you. There will be companies wanting to do you know, uh, strategic collaborations. There will be companies doing X, Y, and Z. If you have a vision to build a truly great company, if you reach scalability, if you reach that stage where you really can do that, there's nothing stopping you. Nothing's going to stop you. So stay true to that vision. I would say that. There are too many companies that sell way too early. Um, and then the final one. I think, you know, this This is more for like, this is not just generic for company. This is more for the people who maybe are founders or, or CEOs and running the company. St stay humble. Don't be afraid to admit that you don't know everything. And, uh, you know, continue to be a mensch, even if you become very successful. So that's the Ten Commandments from Michael at Ox, because we counted focus, focus, focus as number one, two, and three. So <laughs> thank you very much for that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's just to emphasize how, how important it is, right? Yeah. Since you did that, you can also make a wish. So is there anything you wish for right now or you are looking for? <laughs> be careful what you wish for, I guess is the saying. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there could be someone listening to the podcast that might have something that you want. So, I mean, we are recruiting uh, for another investment professional to our team. 
so if you think you have the chops to to cut it, then you know we're we're, we're interested in hearing from you. Cool. Very, very cool. Hey, great. I think we're at the top of our hour. Uh, this was uh, really exciting and, and I love to hear your, your input on all of these topics. And I'm sure we, we will have another opportunity to dig into some of the details here. Um, before we let you go, uh, we'd like to ask you, who would you like to see on the show here next and why? Um, so uh, I don't know. I hope you haven't had this person here yet, uh, but the one I would recommend is is Johnny, the, the founder and CEO of Mentimeter, which is an absolutely fascinating company. And it's it's one of these companies that we as investors would have loved to get on into early. Uh, they, they're a fabulous scaling machine and they've done a great job building something uh, which is truly unique. And I think their experience uh, from product-led growth, uh, from building a really strong culture and essentially doing it on a shoestring without, you know, raising tons of money from people like myself, unfortunately, <laughs> that would be really interesting for people to hear about. Okay, cool. So there, there are alternative ways to getting, I mean, they're a company that really is at scale right now. And you can do that even without raising tons of money. Right. They've done a few things where they basically, they went against the norm and flipped things upside down and, and are really successful. So Johnny, if you're listening to this, we're coming for you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mikael. See you around. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, Daniel. Now we got all the Ten Commandments uh, today. But what was your takeaway from the episode? I was impressed that he, he just could spit those out uh, on the fly like that. That was really, really impressive. Good on Michael. Um, for me, there was a lot of interesting stuff in this episode, like always. Uh, what I take away from this is something I've, I've experienced as, as well. Uh, and it is that a lot of companies underemphasize the value in really defining your position. Who are you? Why are you there? And to whom are you serving a particular purpose? So uh, I think the, the entire ICP buying persona exercise is critical to get done from the get-go. And if I understood Michael correctly, that was his one of his big takeaways here. Get the positioning right from the get-go. What about you, Thomas? Well, once again, I think we get it confirmed and it's been said by other guests before. I remember that uh, Ola at Soundtrack Your Brand, he said the very same thing and I think Fredrik Skans uh, as well. It's focus, it's focus and it's focus. And uh, when it comes to a lot of things, when it comes to your product, that you should make sure that you are really, really good at one thing. And also when it comes to all the other things, I mean, when it comes to recruitment, when it comes to also what you want with your company make sure that you know that and that you stay true to your vision yep we hope you like this episode and we hope you like the podcast and if you do go into your favorite podcast player like spotify and follow us you can also follow us on linkedin and help us promote the episodes and the other activities that we are doing and uh, yeah hope to see you around see you around <laughs>